4: Hey everybody, welcome to the Third Coast Podcast. This is Katie Mingle, rushing this week to get the podcast uploaded. Things are crazy at Third Coast headquarters as we prepare for our biggest events of the year. Our producers' conference happening this weekend, and our award ceremony also this weekend, on Sunday, October 7th. It's a radio explosion! Okay, gotta run, but there are still tickets to the award ceremony and reception if you want to come mingle with us. Go to our website thirdcoastfestival.org for tickets and more info. You know
5: there was whistling. You know that I was whistling. Okay. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxai, and this is Resound.
6: I figured the time had come for me to make my move to Mayberry, my hometown.
5: ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bits, sound bites, and little audio gems we find all over the world. We look, we listen, we scour the airwaves, the internet, the offerings at audio festivals the world over, and then we take the best of what we hear and bring it to you each week on this very radio show,
6: ReSound. Well, how come you didn't tell us that when you first got here? Oh, guess I was awful stupid. Oh, no, 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 you, you're you not stupid. You're a little bit over-anxious, maybe. <laughs> you like the town, you like that little girl. But you got to give him time, you see, to like you back. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yes, Ree. Folks like to take things slow.
5: The fictional town of Mayberry, from the 1960s sitcom The Andy Griffith Show, was a quintessential, benign, small southern town. A town that was all white, all middle class, and all full of harmless oddball characters who were accepted by everyone. But of course, real life is always a little more complicated than life on TV. And life in real small southern towns has always been more layered, troubled, complex, and ever-changing than life in quiet Mayberry. Today on ReSound, two stories about culture and change. We'll start with a complicated portrait of a town in transition. Siler City, North Carolina, used to be the kind of place where everyone knew each other's name. In fact, getting back to The Andy Griffith Show, it's rumored that Frances Bavier, the actress who played Aunt Bee, retired there because it actually reminded her of her life on TV. I
7: never would have guessed in a million years.
5: But starting about a decade ago, Siler City experienced a massive cultural shift as Latino immigrants started moving into an already racially divided community, bringing with them a new language and new traditions. Producers John B. Wynn and Tennessee Watson of the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University spent some time in Siler City and made this story. It's called Nuevo South.
8: This neighborhood is a lot of old families. People have been here since I guess the town's been here. This is one of the oldest families in town right here. I used to cut that lady's grass when I was 10 years old. They've been there forever. My name is Eddie Ambrose Green, and I was born and raised right here on Airport Road in Solid City, North Carolina. In Solid City, we had two options. You either worked at the plant or you drove a truck. I knew I wasn't geared to work at a plant, so I started driving truck and hauling chickens from Solid City all over the country. Solid City, unfortunately, has always been a racially divided town. Like out there where I live, and that from the airport, from the, when you turn on airport road, that's like all black section. So when you go past down into the country, it's like all white. So all through here now, but all these houses now are all Mexicans. This is The beginnings of downtown as you come from west to east. They're old brick buildings. Look at the workforce. This is a good time. They're changing shifts. That's almost the end of the day. You're seeing the Hispanic population getting off work at one of the major portrait processing plants in town. I don't mean to say this in a a, a racist kind of way, but if you ever seen a house overrun with roaches and you can't stop them, and it's like you look and there's two, when you look again, there's four. When you look back, there's seven. If you sit here, you'll notice you don't see a black person or a white person come out of this plant. At all. I pretty
9: much like here, cause it's, I don't know, it's a different experience since I used to live in the countryside in Guatemala. I'm there right, um, I'm in the 12th grade and we live here since 2002. It wasn't like this before. I think it were four mobile homes. And then the lady that owns this land, she decided to bring more mobile homes. It's like only Hispanics living here, mostly from Mexico. I live with my parents, and I have three sisters and two brothers.
10: My parents
5: are uh, Francisco and Florinda. I'm Deborah's mom. I worked for seven years in the chicken plant. One year with Pilgrim's Pride and six years with Gold Kiss. The packing area is where I work. You pack everything, what they call the breast, the tender, the leg. You throw it in the boxes, cover them up and throw them on the line.
0: My name is Francisco. Right now I work for a builder where we make walls for houses. I have to drive 40 minutes from here to where I work. But thanks to God for bringing us here, and we're here working. You come from one country to another not knowing about the culture, what life has been like in a place. We didn't know. I didn't know anything. What we have seen is that there are people, like in all places, who are good, and there are people who look at others with disdain, as if they're saying, you aren't from here, get out of here. I don't pay attention to them because I know I came to this country to work and to watch over my family, to see to their future. I have a daughter who is about to graduate from high school. From what I see, she has always worked hard and gotten honors in her studies. And she likes soccer. Today's
11: the first day of the uh, team. We uh, spent the entire week going through tryouts and so uh, this morning we finalized the list. Yellow on this side, ladies. Yellow over here. My name is Paul Quadros and I am the head coach of the Jordan Matthews High School Soccer Program in Siler City. And in addition to that, I'm a journalist, an author, and an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Let's have Maria and um, Deborah...
9: Uh, I play and defense you stopper. stopper you have to game. not let the forwards go in there and make us a goal. So I try to do my best.
11: She is a lioness in the defensive line. I mean, she is the tiniest person out here, but she brings the biggest game.
0: Hey, you Maria, got it. it. Okay, Maria, go. One, two, three. Let's, Let's go, go Lady
9: Jets.
11: One, two, three, four, five. We're about um, a little over half uh, Latino girls, and the rest are white. We have one African-American, so it's a very diverse team.
2: <laughs> um, Jenny Pleasance, and I'm here at George Matthews, a little late for the soccer game. Um, we appear to be winning by four goals now. Um, I'm watching my child, Meredith Pleasant. She's number 18, and she's a right wing but the funny thing is when you go to the soccer games, none of their parents speak English.
12: So they all sit
2: on one side, and we all sit on the other. And we don't, I don't understand a thing they're saying. You know, how do you say your kid's playing really good if half the time you can't pronounce the name, you know, um, and they don't understand anything you're saying.
5: Go Shannon!
2: Oh! But, you know, the biggest change I'd have to see would be at my pediatrician's. I grew up being able to walk in and they all knew who I was and I saw the same doctor and now when you go in there's 20 Hispanic families and kids everywhere and they have the lady up front speaks Spanish. I feel like I'm the minority and that does bother me in a town that I grew up and raised my children in. You know, it's like do you have Medicaid? Do you have your papers? I'm like, I've been coming here for 18 years, that frustrates me to sit in a room with, you know? all these Hispanic families and I know their children need health care too but the change in the environment in the pediatrician office is not like it was when you could just go take you know walk up to the window and say hey um, so-and-so sick it's just not what what it was when we why we went there to begin with.
11: Well I've always described uh, what a town like Siler City or now what the country's going through as sort of the uh, five stages of dealing with grief we're dealing with immigration or cultural change. And, you know, initially there might be denial, and people saying, well, you know, it's not really going to change. Uh, it's not happening to our town. And when I got here, I heard a lot of depression from longtime residents, you know, a real sense of loss of uh, the community and the culture and everything that Siler City was.
5: Do do have a 30% chance of showers, drizzle. We're 67
13: now in cloud a year at WNCA. Hey, do you drive a cool vehicle with those big aftermarket rims? Well, Wayne's Alignment Services... I am Barry Hayes. I am the bear of the air at WNCA Radio AM 1570. I'm also the president, general manager of the company, and the janitor, and I mow the yards. I I'm from this area. I'm from central North Carolina, and... You know, I've been in Siler City about 25 years. I came here to manage this radio station and just fell in love with the town. It was a rural town, a blue-collar town, uh, maybe 70% white, 30% black. Typical makeup of a, a small North Carolina town.
14: This is Ilana Dubester, and I'm the past executive director of a local Latino center called El Vinculo Hispano, or Hispanic Liaison in English and um, we provide all kinds of direct services and advocacy. The agency, I helped start the agency with a group of people in the county back in 1995. But I remember coming here in 91 or early 92, and I came downtown and walked around these streets that we're walking right now, and um, it was a pretty uh, depressing scene. (laughs) I don't know if there's a nicer way to say that. Um, There were a few businesses downtown, but most of the downtown area, which is this two streets on Chatham Avenue, uh, were boarded up. There was nothing. And certainly, you know, as you can see from downtown, although it's still working itself up, you know, most shops are now open, and you see a lot of Latino businesses as well.
13: Siler City was an industrial town, but it was a dying industrial town, we were seeing uh, jobs falling by the wayside, and we were seeing the textile uh, industry downsizing. We were seeing our furniture industry downsizing. Our cotton mill was downsizing, and they continued to downsize for the next 20 years.
14: So in already we were ready to start to see a Latino immigration, uh, and certainly I would notice people in supermarkets and stores and trying to read labels or trying to talk to people and and remember going home scratching my head saying how what why what's going on here why are people here how are they getting here
13: well as we were losing our some of our mainstream industry uh, the poultry industry was growing here in Siler City and so they began attracting the uh, Hispanics into this region
14: very active recruitment in Mexico in particular and they would give bonuses for people bringing more people because they were really in shortage of of workers and they had you know chewed through the white population chewed through the black population everybody you know over the years got their children to be better educated than themselves and you know moving on to other work the best guess now is that uh Siler City is 50% latino about 5000 people
13: i think the uh, broader community here has welcomed uh, our newcomers with open arms uh, the only rub is we would just like for them to obey our laws and, and learn some of our cultures here and keep clean yards.
14: Then in 96, the town created a Hispanic task force. Well, needless to say, there were no Hispanics on the task force. So they created two brochures. First, the Spanish was really poor, it was hard to understand, some of it didn't make any sense, but it was about Junk in your yard, domestic violence, drugs, no, like in this country, it's, it's not okay to beat your wife. It was a very offensive brochure and made a lot of assumptions about us and who we are and who we aren't and what we are about. And it was all about, you know, we're a bunch of criminals and we got to learn how to
9: behave.
13: Housing was a problem, too. We had uh, folks who were moving into vacant houses. And then they would be inviting their relatives to come, and pretty soon we would have a house with 10, 15, who knows, maybe 20 people living in one house, and they'd be parking their cars all in the front yard and hanging their laundry out in the bushes and so forth. We had to to deal with that a little bit and trying to educate them as to uh, our ways here in Siler City. So
11: you got the Depression, and then you got this sort of sense of fear of their taking over. And then, you know, you you have anger. And that's what we saw in 1999-2000 in Siler City. A lot of anger that eventually bubbled forth and culminated in this anti-immigrant rally that I think the town still tries to live down, the the David Duke rally.
4: The truth
8: and the reason why we're here today is because we have a deep, and abiding love for our heritage, for this town that your fathers and mothers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers and mothers, but they built with their sweat and their sacrifice and their
14: vision. This was on top of town hall. They maybe had 50 or 60 people, a couple hundred people on the outside of the event, a lot of them police officers, some curious people, some Latinos, but not many people.
8: Ladies and gentlemen, what are we supposed to do? Just be quiet? Just keep our mouths shut while our country and our community and our town and our schools and our heritage is taken away from us? Is that what we're supposed to do? I say no! I say never!
13: This was brought in by an extremist group. This was not representative of the mindset here in Siler City at all and uh, we kind of hung our heads you know when that happened and couldn't wait for it to go away.
14: My sense my opinion is if that rally had been organized by some upstanding citizen and not tied to KKK to the Grand Wizard there would have been a lot more people but because it had a KKK in it with David Duke I mean who wants to be seen with the KKK I mean a few do and we know who they are got their pictures but uh, not many people are willing to do that nowadays.
11: So uh, there's been some, maybe some good things that have come out of that Duke rally, uh, but mostly it made people kind of think you know, where they stood on this issue. You know, were they going to stand down there with David Duke and the Klan against the Latino population, or were they going to try and find some other kind of accommodation to be able to live uh, in that town.
12: Okay.
15: Somewhere on that pad, there's a bunch of stuff in red. Anywhere Sometimes, you want to start. Anywhere, go, anywhere you want to go.
16: Anywhere.
10: All right.
15: My name is Tim Rife, and uh, I'm the code enforcement officer for the town of Solar City. There's a set of guidelines in, in the town code um, or laws, they're actually laws, it deals somewhat with aesthetics and things like that of the town, and my, my job is to. Enforce and uh, I try to use kids' gloves to do that. I don't try to, you know, scare anybody into anything or anything else. I ask them politely. and...
9: team is doing a, a good job. The problem is he doesn't speak enough Spanish. My name is Marcia Espinola and I'm the associate director for the Hispanic liaison, El Vínculo Hispano. We were agreed that the community was needing some help. What's that house over
15: there? Can you see the house over there, Marcia?
9: Hi, how are you?
15: Obviously, he wasn't the English speaking, and she explained to him that he needed to remove the sofa from the porch. Interior furniture on the outside, which is not allowed by the town code. Um, and she told him that he could take it inside or he could take it to the curb, the town office. free curb pickup uh, once a week.
9: Okay. He may okay.
15: have not Done the graffiti. Of someone I say else. That. Okay. All right. <laughs> you I have no say clue what else? you said. <laughs> no, <laughs> you just just thanks for your cooperation.
9: Thank you. Okay.
15: You know, some of these people came from some incredibly uh, wretched living conditions, mm-hmm. and you know, you don't, you don't know the customs and stuff.
9: Some people said, "Well, the Hispanics don't clean their yards and everything," but maybe it's because they don't understand the language. Because after we went last year talking to, I don't know, 10 places, 20 places, yeah. everybody cleaned their houses. I've
15: been here almost eight years. Uh, it's not nearly as bad as it was when I first came here.
9: Uh, so it's helped everybody. And hopefully he's going to speak Spanish next year.
15: <laughs> I know about 100 Spanish words, something yeah. like that. Maybe two, Maybe 200 now. I've been working on it.
17: Um, I just want to get a quesadilla de, um, pollo. Green chicken? Yeah. The
16: regular or the regular The regular small one, yeah.
17: Chicken? With arroz? With arroz? Yeah. Um, my name is Calvin Dark. I'm 29. I was born and raised here in Siler City. I now live in Washington, D.C. So, you know, I've lived and studied abroad a lot, but I always kind of kept the connection. I think because my family is here, um, all of my family, my mother's side and father's side, were at probably one of my favorite restaurants in Siler City, um, San Felipe Mexican restaurant. In 2000, when I studied in Argentina, when I got back here, I you know, wanted to just practice Spanish and everything. So the first thing I did was I told my parents I wanted to eat Mexican food. They were not that excited about it at first because they'd never had Mexican food, they didn't know what it was. And um, my parents loved the food, you know. Um, that was a few years ago. Coming to the Mexican restaurant to get fajitas or quesadillas. It's not something you know exotic anymore. That's why I think you know this restaurant and se- several others have done a lot to kind of like, just open up the culture to let people in Silas City know, you know, people eat just like we do here, you know. your uh, life? Yeah. Gracias. Black people felt that we had a place here. I mean, some parts of it were good, some parts of it were not good. My mother never went to you know, an integrated high school, but it was a definite place. Um, I've never felt anywhere, anything but at home here. At the same time, um, having a new group come in, it was, just, it was very tense, you know, very, very tense.
7: My name is Susan Alston and I'm a native of Solid City. I've been here lifelong and I'm Calvin's Dark's aunt. For me. Go. Well, my family history with First Baptist Church goes back for, I guess, 70, 80 years with my uh, grandmother being rooted there. In fact, uh, The first minister there was our great uncle, Uncle Doc Siler. And uh, we have all just been there all our lives, just as a hand-me-down family. You're a Baptist, you go to First Baptist.
17: I'm Calvin Dark, and we're here on the dark side. Cause we have my um, Aunt Susie's house here, and then just over there is um, my grandmother's house. Then my Aunt Pookie's house is there. Uh, next door to hers is Aunt Betty's house. Yeah. 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 Hey, it's Aunt Susie. You probably already met. It's Aunt Pookie.
7: Doing? I'm Zilphia Dark. Zilphia. Z Y L P H I A. They call <laughs> me Pookie. I'm 63 and be 64 June the fourth. I retired from the government as an inspector in the plants last year. So I work with the Latinos. But they are hardworking people, and I understand the reason why they are coming, because no working, if they were poor like I was growing up, I can understand trying to feed your family. You're about to do anything. The work is really hard work in the poetry plant. And I think they treat them... Well, to me, the Latinos are really taking place of the blacks, what we used to go through. But I'm a believer God made us and love us all. And I try to treat people the way I want to be treated. I have a different point of view than my sister, which I love dearly, but we think differently. I mean, we look at the Hispanics as coming in because of their uh, lack of necessities from Mexico. But then I ask myself, could we in turn do the same? If we were to want to move to Mexico just by flood. And yes, I believe that all of us are human. But to see the same things, the rights that I never had in high school, to just be able to go into a store without feeling the oppression of I'm taking something or I'm being watched. And, and, and that's just the way I feel. I I don't hate the Hispanics. I just think they stepped into a place that we still haven't arrived at 2008.
11: For white folks, you know, it's kind of like a no-win situation for them. This is Paul Quadras again, the uh, soccer coach at Jordan Matthews High School. If they've learned anything from the civil rights movement, from the history with African Americans, and them applying those things that they've learned to this new group of Latinos then it feels like to african americans that they're being stepped over that you know you didn't treat us that way and now you're treating them that way why so what are whites and latinos supposed to do recreate this history all over again of oppression and misunderstanding or really learn from the history that's happened of race relations in the us and the south <laughs> In 2006, we had the marches that happened all across the U.S. where immigrants decided that they needed to express their opposition to what was happening in Congress at the time. That was the same march that happened in Siler City as well.
14: This is Ilana Dubester. It wasn't an angry event. It was really about you know, immigration reform and solidarity. And a lot of people spoke. A lot of African-American leaders spoke. And a lot of people walked up to the mic and asked to speak. And, um, and so we filled up this whole block and the entire church parking lot with people and on top of town hall as well.
13: I am Barry Hayes. This was a much larger turnout. Uh, the, the David Duke March maybe had 200 people there This one had uh, over a thousand people maybe 1500 people.
14: We figured it would about be in total about you know five six seven thousand people
13: I think the town just felt like that this was the wrong way to, to go about getting something if you wanted to ask for something or gain the favor of the community that they were just going about it in, in totally the wrong way
14: Tough shot. I mean, that's what it was about. It's okay if we're invisible. It's okay if we're silent. It's okay if we hide in our houses. It's okay if we break our backs and twist our hands, cutting a freaking chicken. But for us to stand in front of your town hall, demanding better services, demanding a better life and a better future, that's too much. You brown people stepped out of your place. We want a new place. Look how many of us are here. We have power in this town, right? We don't actually have power in terms of representation, or anything we don't have, right? But, but look, at, look at what's happening and look at what we can do.
11: When I talk about those five stages, you know, this is really dealing with the loss of the culture, that, you know, the culture is changing. And that's what makes this issue so volatile. Uh, the last stage, of course, is acceptance, and uh, I don't necessarily think that Silas City is totally there, um, but it's certainly not as angry as it used to be.
0: Oh, good job, Deborah!
12: Well, my name is Virginia Tobar. I'm the interpreter here at the high school,
18: and I do a little bit of everything, not just interpreting, but um, slash secretary, slash nurse, slash counselor, slash... Li- <laughs>
2: Okay, I'm Jenny Pleasants, and um, I have a daughter that's a senior, and Miss Tobar's been at Jordan Matthews um, for the last four years, and she's, she's just one that kind of knows... Everybody, Every, everybody. Everybody. Yeah. No matter who they are, where, what grade they're in, where they go to, you know, church, whatever. And she can speak <laughs> Spanish in one second and then turn around and speak English to me when I walk in the door. I don't know a thing she said five minutes before, but it's like, whatever, it works. <laughs> she really is a gem to Jordan Matthews. Oh, well, she thank really you. is. Thank you. She is a gem. We're very lucky.
5: Well,
12: thank you. <laughs> um, as far as a coach, I mean, awesome coach too. Coach Cuadros, um, He's he. I think he's been just a positive impact on this school too. Cause I mean, we just started our soccer team. Um, it's been just a few years, which we didn't
1: have a soccer team as far as the boys and the girls.
11: You know, a small towns' identity is usually wrapped up with its high school, its schools. The most visible part of that school is on its athletic fields. <laughs> Now, Saudi City is a real football town, uh, a very traditional sports town. There was a lot of resistance to uh, the soccer program at the high school uh, initially. Late 90s, early uh, turn of the century, it was quickly seen as something for the Latino students at the school.
15: Paul had a hard time getting uh, really the, the access to the fields and... That he came to our Rotary and some more people got involved and they decided to go ahead and start a soccer team and let the field be used. John Pleasants from Siler City. I grew up here and I've traveled around, but I, I'm back here raising my kids. I love this town and I, I love the area. Of course, now you've got a great involvement. They won the state championships with the boys and the girls team, uh, as you can see, has got great camaraderie out there. They don't really care where where their background is. They're they're all great kids that enjoy each other.
11: What the uh, Jets did, uh, it was uh, it was real big. It got the long-term residents to look at these kids as one of their own. These kids were not just Latino kids; they were Jets.
0: San Francisco, and aquí estoy con con mis I'm Francisco. I'm here watching the game with my two daughters, Ellen and Madeline, and all the other fans that are here watching. It's beautiful. We're here supporting our girls.
9: I think it's good to have different people in the team, especially uh, white girls, because you get to know them better, and you realize that it's not how others said, Sometimes they're being racist, but, like, the girls in my soccer team, they, like, uh, invite us to their house and and have, like, food and play out there. And that's cool. I think it's great to have friends that they're from different countries. Because you learn from them, and they learn from you.
11: You know, when people talk about, oh, this is, you know, this immigration question, it's not about immigration. It's about demographic change you can deport all 12 million undocumented immigrants You know, I don't know how many of them are Hispanic the majority might be but the demographic change is still going to happen and that loss of power, numbers, whatever that frightens a lot of people but change is inevitable it's, uh, it's one of the physical laws of the universe nothing stays the same, everything changes And um, that's a good thing.
5: That was Nuevo South by producers John Bewin and Tennessee Watson of the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. John is a seasoned public radio producer, and Tennessee is a social activist and documentarian. To read an interview in which they talk about how they peeled back the complicated layers of this story, visit thirdcoastfestival.org.
8: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
14: Maybe he'd just like to go home.
6: Yeah, all the way home where he come from.
14: <laughs>
6: <laughs> 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 what, what in the world are you all trying to do? I know why you're trying to fight him. you all trying to run this boy out of town. Don't, Annie. Just let me go. No, I'm bound to say this, and they're bound to listen, too. Now, what's his big crime? What's this boy done to make all of you so mad at him? Nothing not thing. He just picked Mayberry to be his hometown, that's all. Just picked it right out, picked it right out. And then he decided he wanted to come here and live, fit in, and act like one of you. Made some of you feel suspicious, made some of you feel foolish, scared some of you. But out of all the towns, he picked Mayberry to be his hometown. It looks like to me you'd be proud to have a fella think so much of you to want to come settle down and live amongst you. You're
5: listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. Today we're talking about change, subtle and not so subtle. We want to hear from you. Send your comments, subtle or not so subtle, to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. It's been 72 years since this strike heard around the world, when auto workers in Flint, Michigan, occupied the General Motors plant and jump-started the union movement in the United States. But in recent years, the power of the unions in the U.S. has waned, and sit-down strikes just don't happen much anymore. Well, that all changed in December of 2008, when workers occupied the Republic windows and door factory in Chicago for six days. Producers Dan Collison and Elizabeth Meister of Long Haul Productions revisit this incident with the workers and organizers at the factory. Their story is called Si Se Puede, Yes We Can. And it includes original music by Jesus Chuy Negrete.
12: My name is Armando Robles. I work at Republic for eight years and four months, and my position at maintenance mechanic. And uh, I am the local president of Local and United Electrical Workers. Chuy. Up to
16: Illinois. From Mexico you have come To the cities of Chicago And to toil in the sun
1: My name's Leah Fried. I'm an organizer with UE. The first red flag for us happened around mid-November when workers noticed that a significant amount of machinery started leaving the plant.
12: They start moving equipment In the middle of the night, with a rental truck from Juho.
1: And people showed up for work Monday morning and saw that an entire production line was gone.
16: In the state of Illinois, where we come to work and toil, workers tell their stories in the state of Illinois.
18: My name is Ricky Macklin. I'm a former Republic window and door worker, and I'm vice president of local 1110 UE. We was requesting information, and they wouldn't give it to us, you know, and then when they would talk with us, they was lying, you know, they said that they were selling the machines to make payroll, and it just wasn't adding up.
1: All they told us was that Bank of America was considering whether or not they were going to continue financing the company, and that there was a lot of concern that they would uh, shut off credit, and that would cripple the company and make it no longer able to function, but that they were hopeful that they would uh, continue to get financing.
3: My name is Mark Meinster. I'm an international representative for UE. We later found out that they were setting up a satellite operation, a non-union operation in Iowa, in order to get out from under the union contract.
18: So then that was when we started trying to get a strategy together as to what we would do if they just tried to close the plant on us. Really, the idea was, you know, if the company was going to offer
3: people nothing, would people take a stand and not leave the plant until they won justice? And uh, Armando thought it was a pretty good idea. We talked it through. We talked about the risks of it. And then the next day, we brought it up with the leadership of the union inside the plant.
12: We buy some change, some lacks. And our first idea was like a throw out of supervisors on everyone from management and lack ourselves, and then obligate the company to negotiate us.
19: My name is Jorge Mujica, and I am a uh, labor and community activist, a Mexican immigrant. You have this immigrant labor force that, on one side, has some labor union tradition in their countries of origin, not only Mexico, but some others too. And then you have people who also participated in the last years In the immigration movement, the famous marches all over the United States, but particularly here in Chicago. The uh, African-American workers, white workers in the Republic windows and doors, participated in the immigration marches. That
3: movement of people coming out on the streets and showing their collective power was really powerful and really taught workers in a lot of cases uh, how to come together, how to organize, how to make a sign, some good chance to use, uh, some real
19: on-the-ground actual skills. So you put all this together, you have a labor union that is pretty progressive and UE is prone to direct action, the workers are prone to direct action, they already learn how to fight and they fight. Well,
16: go, well, go, well, go. Well, I hit me strike. This happened in the state of Illinois.
18: Then when Illinois, we came to work Illinois, December 2nd, so work which oil, was a Tuesday, a factory, we were told that Republic was closing the doors for good that Friday. We was also informed that we were not going to be paid for our vacations that we had already earned and that they would discontinue our insurance at
12: that moment i called my wife first and i told her you know what friday is my last day of work and she said now what are we gonna do Uh, don't worry we're gonna make it but i was feeling like crap like it's gonna be hard to find another work when it's christmas and it's no jobs There's no jobs around the city.
1: Specifically, what they were being denied was the money owed to them under the Warn Act, which states if you're going to close a place, uh, you have to give 60 days notice or pay health insurance or benefits for that 60-day period. The company refused to pay both the vacations and the Warn Act money, saying that Bank of America wasn't allowing them to do so.
12: When they told us that, everybody started organizing. We told the people we're going to have a rally. We ran up two buses. And we make our first protest from my local in front of the Bank of America.
17: We say, Bank of America, you got bailed out, we got sold out! You got bailed out, we got sold out!
12: And we couldn't understand how the Bank of America received $25 on bailout and the workers throw out of the street with no notice, with no benefits, with no
18: earned vacations
17: are being thrown out on the streets two weeks before Christmas!
18: Friday came. Bank of America and the owners from Republic Window and Doors, they had agreed to meet with us that Friday. Republic did not show up to the meeting. And so the flashpoint really came on that final day when the company
3: told us there's nothing on the table for these workers.
18: So at that time it was agreed that we would occupy the plant.
17: At this hour, about 200 factory workers let go from Chicago's Republic windows and doors are staging a sit-in at the factory.
18: I'm a black man, I'm 55 years old. I come from Mason, Tennessee, which is right outside of Memphis, Tennessee. I'm the grandson of a sharecropper. So I've seen a lot of stuff in my life, you know, a lot of injustice. And I realized that without a fight, nothing changes. So at some point, I just had to look at the bigger picture. Well, I grew in Guadalajara, Mexico with my stepfather. And
12: he has a factory. And he asked me, what made me to fight? He told me, you crazy. What make you to do that? 10 years I worked for him, cleaning the floors. And all the times he paid me what he wants. And it's what I feel in like uh, for this oppression I received since being a kid. And then the all the places where I work, they oppress me all the time. So I feel like I, that's the thing. Made me to, to fight. Huelga,
16: huelga, 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 it means strike, And it happened in the year 208. And before it's too late, December 5th was the date.
18: Before Friday, we had gotten 40 people that said that they would occupy the plant. But when that day actually rolled around that Friday, everyone wanted to occupy the plant. We all just came together.
10: In the freezing
5: cold, hundreds of workers, their families, and even strangers, outraged over the raw deal they say employees of Republic Windows and Doors were given, stood on the
1: steps of
10: the plant in solidarity, calling for justice. What do we want?
1: And so we said, OK, well, look, the cops may show up. If they show up, let's scatter. Make it really hard for them to catch you and drag you out. If you get caught and they ask you to leave and you don't want to get arrested, then you leave. But if you are willing to get arrested at that point, you know, chain yourself to something and make it really hard for them to get you out of
4: there.
18: And so then I talk with my wife and I told her about my intention to go to jail, and she hit the roof. (laughs) She had asked me, she said, okay, so you've lost your job, you've lost your Warren Act money, you've lost your vacation money, you've lost your health insurance, and now you've lost your mind. (laughs) I was prepared for
12: whatever it has to be. I knew that it could happen to be arrested, to be in a for trespassing but at that moment I don't have nothing else to lose I have to fight back for justice and we don't deserve the company throw out like like garbage
1: there's about 200 people uh, right now in the factory they have been here all day it's been a very long day a very peaceful day Uh, the workers are very committed
3: we figured we had about two hours in the plant before the uh, cops kicked us out of there
1: actually the police did show up on Friday and we just talked to him, we just said, you know what, we're just staying, we're waiting on an answer from the bank, you know, we're here because we're owed this money, and it's peaceful, people are here with their kids, it's a nonviolent action, you know, everybody worked here, they made these windows.
18: Because like you see, the public window and doors, without the workers, it's just republic. We make the windows and the doors, this man, that lady, you know what I'm saying, all of us. We. Make the window in the doors. And the police were like,
1: okay.
12: (laughs) So we're feeling like uh, we got a support from the police department saying like, uh, what you are doing is, is illegal, but it's fighting for your rights. Live in the CNN newsroom, Don Lemon. We bring some TVs to the company to see
3: what is the news?
17: Drastic measures laid off workers hold up inside the business that fired them, refusing to leave until the company pays up.
3: This was a major international news story. You know, we walked outside and, and Al Jazeera was outside and Le Monde. It's the kind of direct
17: action rarely seen in America.
1: What happened in terms of support support the media of the certainly was the like the perfect government storm. Government. The Bank of America angle certainly made it a much deeper story and linked it to so many other things going on in the country at the time that A lot of people wanted to hear the story. Frankly, it's shameful that a bank that got $25 billion in federal bailout money turns around, shuts down a factory by cutting off their credit. So we basically said to management, look, you can either do this the hard way and drag us out of here and get a lot of bad press and we'll fight you every step of the way, or you can just accept the situation. And I think they realized that it was going to be a nasty, nasty fight to get us out of there. For now, workers say they plan to remain here, securing windows and doors and equipment.
18: It caught on because... People are just tired, you know? And sometimes no one wants to be the first one to stand up. And I think that Republic was the first ones to just stand up in a long time.
16: Huelga, 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 it means strike. Huelga, 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 we have just begun to fight.
1: This was an unusual experience for everyone. I had never been in a plant occupation before, and none of the workers had either. So we were, you know, figuring out some stuff as we went along. So there was three shifts: the morning, afternoon, and, and night shift. We put out the call for sleeping bags, because <laughs> so, people who were spending the night uh, in the factory needed someplace to sleep.
18: We had different teams to clean the cafeteria, to clean the bathrooms. During that time, it was snow and ice outside, so we had crews that were shoveling the snow and putting down salt. And then we had security details, you know, people that was walking around the plant periodically making sure that everything was okay and safe. And we started making crews of
12: people, to
19: taking care of the equipment. That machine that you never had time to fix, well, the mechanic was fixing the gate at 3 o'clock in the morning. So he was, you know, helping himself in that sense, you know, for the time the factory reopens, well, that gate is fixed.
8: must be congratulated for having the courage and the great tradition of Dr. King.
12: Sunday, the the third day, we'll receive uh, Jesse Jackson. He brings some uh, turkeys and some uh, food for the
8: workers. Of Cesar Chavez. A lot of workers Tradition from other
12: places, they came to, US to show the us their support, bring donations, bring food, stuff like that.
19: Somebody coming out in zero degrees or in 30 degrees, you know, freezing temperatures, to stand up with you, to walk with you three blocks around seven, in a picket seven, line.
6: Seven, seven,
19: and when you realize that he or she is there, for you, helping you out, giving you even a small portion of their lives, that's very uplifting. It gives you the uh, affirmation that you are right.
1: And frankly, around the country, people sprang into action. There were protests at branches of Bank of America all over the country.
10: You got bailed out, we got sold
11: out. We're here in New York City in solidarity with the U.E. strikers in Chicago. We're gonna descend upon a few branches of the Bank of America.
12: And then we see uh, Obama make a statement about
15: us. When it comes to uh, the situation here in Chicago uh, with the workers who are asking for the benefits and and payments that uh, they have earned, I think they're absolutely right. These workers, if they have earned these benefits and their pay, then these companies need to follow through on those commitments.
18: When he made that statement, Morale just shot off the roof. (laughs) (laughs) Frankly, after that statement,
3: you know, we had a line of of politicians outside of the plants in a way that we we never had before and and may never have again.
16: We are the republic. (laughs) Workers gathered together for defending their rights. (laughs) Trabajadores de mi pueblo, yo les vengo aquí a cantar. Trabajadores de the
1: most difficult day of the occupation happened on Tuesday, December 9th. The day before, we had had a visit by the governor, Governor Rob Luguevich at the time, and uh, he had made a very welcome announcement.
0: We have uh, contacted all of our agencies across state government, uh, and as of now, uh, every agency has been ordered to uh, suspend doing any business with the Bank of America. So we had uh, some America pretty we'll high profile
1: pressure on Bank of America, problem. and they were standing to lose quite a bit of money so the governor made this announcement and then the next day on december 9th he got arrested breaking news illinois governor rod blagojevich has been taken into federal custody charged with among other things it was a tough day a lot of the press left and so we were concerned that you know we were open to potentially the police coming by and arresting people and not having any eyes essentially on that
10: i'm reverend cj hawking i'm a united methodist pastor That particular day, Tuesday, December 9th, with all the TV crews gone and the workers being in fear, it just happened to be a day where we had two dozen clergy from across the country in town for a board meeting, and we got permission to go back behind the double doors where the machinery and the windows were and have the workers gather in a circle.
12: It was everybody grabbing their hands and start praying gave us uh, some hope.
10: It was just this very, very powerful moment where many of us felt a release of the tension, knowing that God indeed stood on this holy ground. I think the workers felt really buoyed by this. They felt their own strength starting to come back to them.
5: There is a new development to tell you about in that standoff involving workers who've been staging a sit-in at a factory on the city's north side. Bank of America has now decided it will extend credit to the Republic Windows and Doors factory so that the company can resolve the claims of its employees.
3: Folks ADC just marched right out of the t- plants. When they were marching, they were saying, yes, we did.
12: The occupation is over. We have achieved a victory. We say we will not go out until we get up justice, and we have it. Everybody was clapping and yelling, and we start hugging each other.
18: I feel very good about this victory, and this money will help in my transition. As a result of our fight, and our lack of fear, we was able to be paid everything that we were asking for.
8: Union employees will receive pay for an additional 60 days along with a two-month health insurance extension and vacation pay. It comes to $6,000 per worker. The vote follows a six-day sit-in.
12: Oh, I was feeling fantastic. We did it. And I remember I I, I told my kids, because they see Dora the Splatter, and I told my kids, you know what, guys, we should sing like Dora. Like we did it, we did it. We did it, we did it,
4: we did it! Yay! we did it! And
12: they start laughing about it, saying, "Oh, Dad!" But I was kind of amazing. I feel great and proud of what we did it. And I feel like we did what we has to do it.
1: When we had won the settlement from Bank of America and returned to the factory, we said, okay, well, this is what we've won. But also we have to look to the future and fighting for jobs.
3: What happened, though, was uh, the CEO of Sirius Materials, Kevin Serace called Armando Robles uh, here at the uh, union hall. And, you know, he'd literally seen his name uh, in the media coverage and looked up our number in the phone book and, and called and asked for Armando. And he told me that he is interested to buy the company. He would
12: like to know what he can do it and he say, I got the money to buy the company, I would like to respect the contract, and I would like to respect the union. So, sounds good to me.
3: Sylvia Linda, quite a scene here about 45 minutes ago as the Vice President, Mayor Daley, both Illinois United States senators celebrated the reopening of this North Side factory. It will be used to manufacture what are called the most energy efficient doors and windows in the world by a self-described green company called Sirius Materials. They're going to be hiring the former Republic workers, a small crew at first just to get the doors open, but as more orders come in, they're going to be able to rehire uh, the entire former Republic workforce.
17: I'm Kevin Suray, sometimes the janitor here, but also the CEO of the company. And I want to thank the United Electrical Workers Local 1110, who have been our partners, now let me say it again, our partners from day one in making this happen. This is a new era in worker relations because I consider each and every employee a member of our family, and I welcome them back home with open arms.
12: Uh, It's really, really good news for me and my family and for all my co-workers. I'm pretty sure they're going to be happy when they see this news today. I never lose my hope. I I always be positive and think,
18: like, it could be possible. We have force we are the labor force and with us continually fighting now we're reopening our plants so now we have our jobs back none of this would have been possible had we just decided to just essentially tuck our tails between our legs and walk away
19: we wish that out of the republic windows and door experience came out 10 or 20 or 50 or, or 100 similar experiences. I mean, why not? El día 5
16: de diciembre, allá en la ciudad de Chicago, comenzaron su huelga. Y por seis días enteros, los trabajadores agarraron la compañía. Era la república. Compañía de ventana popular era la República. Ese día en Chicago, no muy cerquitas del mar. El día 5 de diciembre,
5: qué día tan señalado. Sí se puede produced by Dan Collison and Elizabeth Meister of Long Haul Productions. The original music you heard in this story was by Jesus Chui Negrete. To hear more stories from Long Productions, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxey. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Dojo, a full-service digital agency. On the web at dojo.com. Dojo, we fuel ideas that grow. Support for ReSound also comes from Kate Joyce, devoted to documentary and architectural photography. Specializing in commissions and collaborations with an installation of aerial photographs currently on view at RTKL Chicago Gallery at 200 South Michigan Avenue through October 31st. More at www.kate-joyce.com. Additional support comes from Smoke Barbecue, serving authentic, slow-smoked barbecue and homemade sides. Smoke caters events of all types and sizes throughout the Chicagoland area all year round. Check out their website at smokebbq.com. That's S-M-O-Q-U-E-B-B-Q.com. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, and the Menaki Foundation. This program is partially supported by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear
4: anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. You've been listening to the Third Coast Podcast. Stay connected with us through Facebook and Twitter or by signing up for our email list at thirdcoastfestival.org. If you like what you heard today, consider writing us a review on iTunes or sending us a few bucks. As always, thanks for listening.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more.